Amen. Well, I'm glad to see you. Welcome everybody that's joining us online. And uh, we're going to get our Bibles out open to Philippians chapter 1, page 1349 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, get to Philippians 1, then you might want to take your some kind of tab or something and go to Romans chapter 8, back up to Romans chapter 8, because we'll spend the second half of the message in Romans 8. So <clears throat> you'll be ahead of the game if you're already there. Philippians 1. Now, we've been exploring this issue of transcendent joy, and we've been talking about how the Apostle Paul is in jail, in quarantine, if you will, chained to a Roman soldier, as we talked about last week, and yet he has utter and complete joy. And we've talked about how is this possible? We have uh, sort of framed the last two weeks around answering these questions. If you have your listening guide, you can, or probably you already filled them in because you should know them by now. What if I told you <clears throat> that someone else is more concerned for your joy than you could ever be? Someone else is more concerned about your joy than you could ever be. And then secondly, what if this person has been planning your joy since before you were born? Now, I will confess that the last two weeks have not been easy, have they? No, they have not. They haven't been easy for me and they haven't been easy for you. But you've endured, you've survived, praise God. And now today, you get a reward. Your reward is that we're going to answer these two questions. We're going to get to the place where we have understanding about exactly how the Scripture would answer these questions. Now let's begin reading Philippians 1, beginning in verse 19. We're going to read a very familiar text that if you uh, know one or two verses in the book of Philippians, then Probably Philippians 1.21 is a verse that you know. Very familiar, yet we're going to allow God through the power of the Holy Spirit today to give us fresh insight, wisdom, and understanding into something that has been in the past familiar to us, but now will come alive to us in a whole brand new way. Let's read verse 19. Paul says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to, to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this perfect and errant gift that you've given us in this word that's before us today. By your providence, here we are. Not a random group of people on a random day, but a very specific group of people in a specific time in our lives, we stand before this perfect word. God, prepare our hearts to receive what you have for us today. We pray that you would bring a revolution in our understanding of this scripture. God, for that to happen, we know we would need ears to hear. Would you grant that through the power of your spirit that he may manifest himself here in such a way that, Lord, we would receive, delight in, and be transformed by your perfect word. And we promise to give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. So there's great power in reward, isn't there? You know that there is. Because you're a sucker for reward. We all are. Now, I know that I'm not the only one here who has experienced this in my family. I mean, and, and I don't mean one time. I mean countless times. My kids love the reward game. And here's how it goes. Something's going on. You might be driving down the road. You might be sitting at the dinner table. You might be doing whatever. And <clears throat> one of my kids says, would you do it for $1,000? Now, mind you, my broke kids, jobless kids, would you do it for $1,000? They love this game. And then inevitably they rope Lisa in. It's, it's always Lisa. I don't know, you know what it is because she's so Lisa. So they rope her in. Mom, would you do it for $1,000? Nope. 10,000. Nope. I mean, you know, if it has something to do with a bug, there's not enough zeros. She's not touching the bug. She's not, you know, it's not happening. And I mean, I've heard it all. They're like, come on, mom, $10 million. You're, you wouldn't hold that bug in your hand. It's not happening. She's not doing it. But of course, they don't have any money, right? I mean, I got a feeling. I often wonder, like, if there was a semi-truck of $100 bills outside in the driveway, what would she do in light of that, with that buck? I don't know, but she may not do it. I'm just telling you. But here's the thing. It's, it's this understanding that we have that there is a reward such that it will supersede any aversion or discomfort or whatever it is. Now understand, a reward is only as valuable as the offerer has power and authority to give it, right? So part of the problem with the game my kids like to play is that they broke. So it's just an imaginary thing. But yet it does illustrate something that built into us is this acknowledgement and longing for and fascination with reward. God made us this way. He made us this way. And He designed reward to have great power. Look at, again, Philippians 1 verse 19 Paul says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Deliverance. What does Paul mean? Now, let's think about this for a second. Paul is in prison where he's been for some time, long time. Probably two years, could be three or four. So he's in prison, chained to a Roman guard, and he doesn't want to be there. That's not his number one place. Yeah, is he making the best of it? Well, we saw that last week. Does he have a great attitude about it? Absolutely, is he? But that, that's not his choice. And so when he says, I know that this is going to turn out for my deliverance, obviously if any of us were saying that, we would be talking about deliverance from prison because that would be the main context that would be bearing down on us. But not Paul. The next verse gives it away. Look at verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether in life or death. In other words, Paul may be getting out of jail, and he may not be getting out of jail, but what's preeminently on his mind is ultimate deliverance. Ultimate deliverance is what's driving him, whether by life or death. Paul's saying that either way, whether I get out of prison or not, whether I live, whether I die, I'm on the winning team. That's what Paul's saying. And 
when he gets to verse 21, he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Clearly the context is ultimate. Now, let's think about this issue of reward for a second. When I know that the sovereign good God who loves me has a plan, it changes everything. You see, when I know that a God who is completely sovereign and has the power to do anything and is utterly and completely good and has proven that through his character and nature throughout history, and then on top of that, that I know he loves me, well, if I'm confident of those things, if I know he has a plan, that's a game changer. That is an absolute game changer. You see, it would seem like Paul has, and, and a lot of theological circles, church circles in our day would try to convince you of this, and maybe some of you have sort of uh, unconsciously been lulled into this disguise that it almost seems like Paul has met a Jesus that many professing Christians today don't know. And, and the, the lie would be, well, this is Paul. Oh, Paul's had experiences we haven't had. Paul, Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul went to the third heaven. Paul's done all these things. Paul's, uh, mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul met the same Jesus that you met if you're saved. Same Jesus. And what Paul's clinging to here is the same promise that you have before you today if you're saved. You see, death is scary. It's the second scariest thing in our culture behind public speaking. I mean, you know, it could only get to two on the list. But death is scary. You've all thought about it. We've all thought about it. And it's costly. You've experienced it. Many of you have experienced losing someone that you love dearly. And when you think about dying, you think about the cost. You think about what you're going to lose. You're going to lose relationships. You're going to lose family. You're going to be separated from people you love. You're going to lose friends. You're going to lose your possessions. You're going to lose everything you worked your whole life to accumulate. Gone. So it's costly. There's a lot involved. But you see, when you come to the place where a sovereign good God who loves you has a plan, then what you, you, you're ushered into a different economy. Paul's in a different economy. Paul is using gospel math. And gospel math goes like this. When Paul does the equation of his life, it goes like this. If you add up all the things I'm going to lose by dying... But you add Jesus, it's gain. That's gospel math. That Jesus trumps by a million miles everything that we would lose. Now, I understand that, you know, I'm imploring you to think of things and imagine things in a way that is hard for many of you to stretch your your mind around, but I just want you to j just sort of, you know, dip your toe in the water with me to begin with this morning, you know, that Paul, Paul doesn't want to die, but he will. There's cost involved. You know, when I think about Philippians 1.21, I think about how do I relate to Philippians 1.21? I don't want to die, but I will. I mean, dying is expensive. It's costly. In other words, I want to see my grandchildren grow up. 
I want to walk Kaylee down the aisle or roll with a walker or whatever's going to happen. I want to do that. I don't want to die, but I will. And you see, here's the thing. We just totally misread this. We think the question that God is asking is, will you die for me? He's not asking that question. Paul's not answering that question in Philippians 1.21. Do you know the question that God's asking this morning? It's the same question that Paul's answering here. The question's not, will you die for me? The question is, will you live for me? Will you live for me? Will you live for me today? Will you live for me in your current situation? Will you live for me the way things currently are in your life? Will you? That's the question. Not will you die. Will you live? Will you live? Look, again, just look down at your Bible. Look at 121. I want you to look at something. When you hear this verse quoted, there's always something omitted that is of utmost importance. You ever notice that when you hear this verse quoted, it's quoted like this. To live is Christ and to die is gain. But that's not what the Bible says. It says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me, Paul says, Paul's not answering for you. Paul's not answering whether or not you'll live for Christ. You have to answer for that. For to you is to live as Christ and die as gain. Every single person has to answer this question for themselves. No one can answer this for you. And certainly Paul's not. Paul's simply talking about himself. He's not talking about you and he's not talking about me. God's asking you the same question he's asking Paul. God's watching you, and he's watching me pursue joy. He's watching you clamor for joy, chase after things, work so hard for things, orchestrate things. Not, and I'm not saying that they're bad things, and God's not saying that they're bad things. But he's watching how hard and diligently you work, searching for joy. And he's asking the question, will you live for me? Will you do that? He has a plan, and his plan is for you to have transcendent joy. In this world, in this lifetime. And for you to live and exist for all of eternity in perfect joy. But he's asking you a question. Will you live for me? Now... Let's think about what is driving Paul to be able to answer this question. Because what I want to do is I want God, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of His Word, to drive you this morning towards answering this question, will you live for Him? Here's what Paul knows. Paul knows that we were made for a person and a place. He knows that we were made. All of us, every one of us, and not just him, but all people are made for a person and a place. Now, Jesus is the person, and heaven is the place. And what Paul knows is that we won't be satisfied with any person less than Jesus, and we will not be satisfied with any place less than heaven, because we've been made for it. And so anything other than what we were made for is going to be second rate. It's not going to work. It's not going to satisfy. It's not going to do or perform its intended work. It can't do it. Listen, heaven has been designed and planned from the very beginning for you. The whole point of heaven. Heaven is pointless if it's empty. 
God didn't make heaven to have fellowship with himself. He's always had that, and he will always have that. That's not what it is. He made heaven for you. It's not just a, a part of God. Heaven's not just something that you can pick or, you know, that you can take or not take. Or, you know, it's not like you, you, know, you, you really don't want all the other things about God, but you want heaven. It just doesn't work like that. This doesn't work like that. No. From the beginning, God has a goal. He has a plan. Now, remember, if a good, sovereign God who loves me has a plan, it, it's a game changer. Well, what is the plan? That's a great question. What's the plan? From the very beginning, he's had a plan to dwell with his people in perfect fellowship. Heaven is where that's accomplished. Heaven is the culmination of that plan. Heaven's not the best option that God came up with because people die or because people choose to sin. Heaven isn't God's sort of, you know, plan B. Heaven is why we're here. It's why He made us. It's the point. It's the point. You've never met a person that wasn't made for heaven. But here's the problem. We oftentimes exist in a, we're sort of languishing in a pool of ignorance. This cloudy it's clouding our, our, our judgment and skewing our vision and creating problems to where we're not really sure about things we ought to be sure about. See, if we know our beginning and we know our ending, then we can gain perspective in the middle. See, Paul's in the middle. Me and you are in the middle today. And the only way to flourish in the middle is you have to understand the beginning and the ending. You have to have a, you have to have a real grip on it. And you see, you can just listen to the things that people say to discern their ignorance about the beginning and the end. Which basically is just ignorance about the plan. No wonder they, they don't have perspective and confidence in the middle. They don't even know what the plan is. Let me give you an example. See, when you say something like, well, if I was all good and all powerful, I wouldn't have allowed evil at all. Wow, you are deep, I tell you. You know, in a kindergarten kind of a way. When you hear somebody say that, do you think to yourself, okay. You know, wouldn't it have been better if nothing bad had ever happened? In other words, if God's all-powerful and He's good, why didn't He just make everything good? Why wasn't it just all good? And I don't think, I, you know, to the end of time I could address this. And people just won't get it. Maybe they're just blind, I don't know. But it just baffles me. Wouldn't it just been better if everything was just good all the time? Why didn't God just make, a, make, it, make it to where it was all good? Hello, dopey. He did that. And it was called Eden. It was perfect. There was no problem there. Nobody was sick there. There was no sin there. There was no sorrow there. There was no shame there. There was no guilt there. Everything was perfect. 
That's what God did in the beginning. And then what happened? We messed it up. To which you say, well, if God's all sovereign and perfect and powerful, why didn't he make a situation where we couldn't mess it up? Okay. Then what do you have? You have no relationship at all because you have no choice. If God's ultimate plan is to have perfect fellowship with men and women, with his children, his sons and daughters, then the only way to have perfect fellowship is to have choice. So to put them in a perfect world with a choice so they'd have perfect fellowship, which is exactly the way we began, right? Yes. Furthermore, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. Do you know what makes good things so good and bad things so bad? In other words, things that are really good are only really good because you know what really bad is. If you didn't know what really bad is, you wouldn't know what really good was. Let me break it down for you. Do you know what makes bacon really good? Celery. The fact that I've tasted celery is how I know bacon is amazing. Because it's not celery. And you see, whenever I talk about something like this, it never fails. Someone thinks it's a bright idea to send me an email about how delicious they can make celery. Congratulations. But let me just uh, enlighten you a little bit. When it's your birthday and your family comes to you and they say to you, hey, it's your birthday. What do you want for dinner tonight? Where do you want to go eat? You've never said, hmm, I'm thinking about celery. You ain't never said that. You know what you say? You want steak or shrimp or some amazing pasta. You've never said, how about a big bowl of celery? You never said that. Because even if you wrap it in bacon, which is a great improvement, it's still celery. See, without the pain and the suffering and the problems and the trials and the tribulations, what would we know of the goodness and the patience and the grace of God? Huh? What would you know? How would you know God is good? How would you even know what grace is? So God did make a place with no suffering and no pain. Here's what he said in Genesis 2. And then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Now, you can just look at one verse in Genesis 2 and you can see, look how intentional God is in creating Eden for Adam and Eve. It's for them. It's created for them. It's, it's designed. Everything about it is designed for them. And why? Because it's the place where God meets with them. Like, have you ever just, am I the only person? Everything I read in the Bible, I'm always going, well, what does that mean? Well, why is that there? Well, why did God do that? I mean, didn't that what all of you do? So surely you've asked the question, well, why is it a garden? Well, why, did, why was it the way it is? It was all designed to be a perfect environment for Adam and Eve to have fellowship with God, which is a big, giant, screaming clue as to what is the plan that this sovereign and good God who loves us has. 
See, the garden was really the first temple, if you will. It's the place where people would meet with God. It was a place of great fellowship. And here's the thing. It was a place of great provision. Do you ever notice something about Eden? Eden is self-providing. In other words, it, Adam and Eve are to have dominion over it and are to tend it, but it, it produces for itself. They don't have to do anything to make it provide for them. All of their needs are met automatically. Isn't that amazing? Everything they need is right there. You know, they don't have to do anything. The trees just produce fruit. They're already doing that. He didn't say do this, do this, and then they'll do that. They already do it. And, and think about this. If we back up prior to uh, sin coming into the situation, God makes this interesting command back in Genesis 1. He, he blesses them and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, that's interesting because God clearly in his plan to have perfect fellowship in a perfect environment with his creation wants to have that and share that with everybody. See, he wants that to spread all over the whole earth. He wants all the goodness that he put into Eden to be experienced by everyone. Huh. Yeah. But then sin comes in, brings separation. And so you would think this would be the point where God would say, you know, I mean, I created perfection. I created everything for us to have perfect fellowship. And you weren't satisfied. You wanted more. Like, really? So what does God do? Well, he doesn't give up. He doesn't. He keeps showing us his plan, and not only his plan, but his dedication to his plan. In Exodus 25, the next picture we see, God says, Now let them make a sanctuary, me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. God says, Look, I still want to dwell with you. And so even though there's sin that separates us, I'm devoted to my plan. And so I still want to have fellowship with you. So I'm going to show you how to make a tabernacle where we can fellowship through this tabernacle. And this is exactly how you need to make it. And the same intentional God that made Eden in a very specific way around the needs of Adam and Eve gives Moses a blueprint for how to build this tabernacle. Now, have you ever thought about what does that look like? Well, let me give you some examples. In Exodus 25, let me read this to you. Here's what it says. It says there's going to be a lampstand in the tabernacle. Now, listen to this. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be a hammered work. It's shafts. Its branches, its bowls, its ornament, ornamental knobs, and flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of its sides. Three branches out of the lampstand on one side and three branches out of the lampstand on the other side. That's interesting. So the centerpiece when you enter into the tabernacle is a lampstand. But why does this lampstand look so weird? Why does the lampstand have branches coming off it and then these buds that, are, that turn into bowls that are actually where you put the, uh, the oil in to burn the lamps? What is the lampstand reminiscent of? It looks like the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. It's a picture of Eden. God says, hey, I'm committed. Remember, I made Eden. Now I'm committed to being with you. So now here's the tabernacle, and I'm going to put a big reminder of Eden right in the front door. Then God goes on. The next chapter of Exodus, in Exodus 26, he tells them how to make the, the walls. And he says, moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen. 
and blue and purple and scarlet thread with artistic designs of whatever you want. And that's not what he said. He said, of artistic designs of cherubim, and you shall weave them. So on the walls are these pictures of cherubim, these angels. Now, I wonder why there's angels pictured on the walls. Now, have you ever thought about this, that whenever they, uh, Moses and the children of Israel went to the, you know, God said, okay, stop here, so they would set the tabernacle up. Now, you didn't just set it up willy-nilly unless you just wanted to die that day. You had to set it up especially, exactly, according to the prescribed way you set it up, which was how? You see, you could only face the entrance to the tabernacle to the east, if only to the east. And on the, on the curtains were these woven images of cherubim. Now let me ask you a question. Which way did the entrance to Eden face? To the east. Who guarded the entrance to Eden? Cherubim. God's committed to his plan. He created intentionally perfection in Eden for Adam and Eve. And then he, even after sin, he still makes a way to fellowship with his people. And he still brings a reminder of Eden into the equation. So then what does God do? So then we jump ahead to the incarnation. And here's how Jesus comes on the scene in John chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So now God brings the tabernacle to us in flesh and blood. The way to fellowship with us in flesh and blood. In His own flesh and blood. In His Son. He desires fellowship with His people. His commitment to His plan is so, is so high. It's such that He sent His Son. Look, what does the Bible say in Hebrews 2? That through death He might destroy Him who had power over death. That is the devil. The one who was instrumental in bringing all this problem in the beginning in Eden. Remember that? And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Huh. Look at that. That's what you call commitment to the mission, to the plan. So not only does the Old Testament tabernacle come to life, but then he dies for our sin. And then he ascends back to heaven to the right hand of the Father so that he can intercede on our behalf. But wait a minute, there's a problem. Because if he does that, then he leaves, <clears throat> excuse me, he leaves us what? Tabernacle-less. Where's the tabernacle? Jesus has gone to heaven. God must not be committed to his plan. John 14, and I'm going to pray, Jesus says, to the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Oh, and what's that going to work like? I don't know. How about this? Do you not know that your body is the, what is it? The tabernacle. Look at that. You are the tabernacle. You're the tabernacle. Now the God who is committed, his plan is to have fellowship with you, made you the tabernacle. He indwelled you if you're saved here this morning. Think about this now. We went from Eden to a God who relentlessly pursues fellowship with us to the degree that we went to the tabernacle. We've gone through that excruciating process to then the tabernacle becoming flesh and then 
dying for us and paying the penalty of our sin, but then to us actually becoming the tabernacle. Like you don't have to go anywhere to do anything. You can't get away from him. He's in you everywhere you go. Amen. I mean, what in the world? I'm about to freak out up here. I mean, are y'all alive or what? I mean, somebody's got to, like, take a lap or do a swan dive or something. Man, think about how awesome this is. So what about Eden? Is that gone forever? A lot of people think this is Eden. Revelation 21, the Bible says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there is no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold... Hold on to your seat. The what does it say? Behold the tabernacle. What? The tabernacle. It's with men. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. See? He, he's not giving up. Listen, yeah. oh, man. You, you want to have right perspective in the middle? You got to get a handle on the beginning and the ending. Now, listen. The sovereign good God who loves you has a plan, and his plan cannot fail. And it is centered around an unrelenting, unstoppable pursuit of perfect fellowship with his sons and daughters. Ain't nothing better than what's happening right now. Nothing. I mean, nothing, 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 nothing. So now we know the beginning. And now we know the ending. So all we have to do now is gain perspective in the middle. So turn to Romans chapter 8. Let's get that done and we can jog home. We're too excited to drive. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. Let's get some perspective in the middle. Okay? Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Huh? Hold on now. You were like, I was just about to shout or do something crazy, and then you threw that if we suffer with him. And you lean back in the chair, and you're like, oh, man, I knew there was a catch. All right. What's going on here? Why does... We're ready, Lord. We're re I'm ready. I don't know about anybody else, but I'm ready. I'll die for you, but I'll live for you too. That was interesting. So what does suffering have to do with inheritance? I mean, I, I'm never going to forget that just happened. Some of you are like, I missed it. Well, it'll never happen again probably. Uh, what does suffering have to do with inheriting? Now, let's just think about this for a second. When you think of inheriting, see, because we're co-heirs with Christ. Here's the problem. When you think of inheriting, here's what you think of, the wrong thing. You think of somebody worked really hard and made a lot of money and then gave it to you. You inherited. Now you can do anything with it you want. 
That is not a biblical picture of inheritance. Paul would have had zero understanding of that. A first century biblical understanding of inheritance would have went this way. Somebody worked really hard and built something and then passed it off to you and you then picked up the ball and carried it from there. When you inherited something, you inherited the family business, the family responsibility, the family work. It was a blessing and a gift and all sorts of wonderful things. But you, you understand? It has a meaning and purpose. Somebody didn't just spend their life doing something to hand it to you so you could just burn it up. That's not how that went down. So, let's think for a second about this. What happens when a prince or a princess grows up isolated from the suffering and the pain and reality of the world in which they're surrounded by, shielded in their palace and opulence and pleasure, never knowing pain and suffering and tribulation. They grow up, and they're self-indulgent. They're maniacal and spoiled and entitled. And when they assume leadership, they are tyrannical leaders. Because you can't possibly lead people well if you can't relate to them and associate with them and understand what they're right. And so you'd, you'd be a horrible leader if you did that. Well, here's what the Bible says about us in heaven. That God's redeemed us to... To God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and has made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on earth. You got that? They see when we get to heaven, one of the awesome things about heaven is that we're going to reign with God. You understand? We're going to inherit. We're co-heirs with Christ. See, God wants us to be servant kings, not tyrannical leaders who are spoiled and self-indulgent and entitled. Let me ask you a question. See, if I said to you that the will of God is to conform us into the image of the Son of God, you would all nod and say, yes, amen, that's so true. Why? Why? What is the point of this lifelong journey of sanctification? If you are going to die and just go to heaven and everything's just going to be reset, then why, why sanctification? Why, why are we striving to be conformed in the image of Christ? What's the point of that? If it's just going to be the same. Let me, let me ask you another question. Is it just going to be the same? If you read the New Testament, does every saved person have the same experience in heaven? Hmm? In other words, when Jesus said, oh, great is your reward in heaven. Is he just saying that? Or is that actually the person that he's talking to actually does have great reward in heaven? You think everybody has the same reward in heaven? Do you think everybody has the same degree of punishment in hell? How many times did Jesus say, mm, greater is the judgment, greater is the condemnation? Huh? Read your Bible. What does it say? So here's my question. We're being conformed into the image of Christ for a reason. It matters. It's important. 
God is making us fit to rule a new earth for the glory of Him. Now that is a meaningless statement if we're all just going to, in the blink of an eye, become the same. You see, the promise of Scripture is not simply that God is preparing a place for us. It is also that God is preparing us for a place. And I don't mean us, 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 us. I mean you and me. God's preparing you for a place. And you should take it really seriously. How you doing? Because if you think that you're just going to wobble along through the process and get to the end of the line and you're going to be the same as everybody else, you're going to be sorely disappointed because that's not how it's going to go down. Now, is everybody who goes, does every saved person go to heaven? Yes. Does every person that go to heaven experience eternal transcendent joy? Yes. Does every lost person who dies without Christ go to hell? Yes. Does every person that go to hell experience horrible eternal torment? Yes. But it is not all the same torment and it is not all the same transcendent joy. So, well, I'm just going to let God speak for himself, okay? How about that we do that? What's the next verse? Verse 18 in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, now remember, he just said that we're going to be co-heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him. In other words, there's, there's a clause in that. You got that? Did you catch that? If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. That means go to heaven. All right? Very next verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in heaven, in God. No, no, in us. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm just asking you a question. What glory is in you that's going to be revealed? Well, what is that talking about? Is everybody just going to reveal the same glory? Look at the next verse. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, now let's think about this for a second. Why is creation waiting for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. In other words, what is that all about? See, again, we would all nod our heads if I said, oh, creation's groaning because sin has broken it. And it's groaning to be put back together the right way. And everybody would say, yes, we agree with that. That's totally good. But what if I said, oh, it's groaning. It's waiting for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. What does that mean? Why would that be so? What, what, what would make the connection of those two things? Listen closely to what I'm about to say. When we become what we were meant to be, creation will become what it was meant to be. That's all going to happen at the same time. But we're going to go first. That's how that's going to happen. Look at verse 20, Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in what? Hope. Hope. Look, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You see that? 
Creation is going to be delivered. Following us is going to be delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We're going to be in this glorious liberty. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Now here's the thing. Think about this. It doesn't say death pains. It says birth pains. Now I'm not a absolute expert on this, but I'm 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 pretty up to speed on it and I'm going to lay it down for you. Birth always hurts. I don't know that personally, but I've seen it personally enough to know that, praise God, I'm a man. It always hurts. Death doesn't always hurt. You know that? I have sat beside multitudes of people who have passed from life to death in total peace. And you probably know someone who has too. But birth never comes but one way but by pain. But death may be very, very painful, or it may not be. It just depends. But notice that it's going to come by birth pains together until now, verse 23. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. So there's more to come. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body or the resurrection of our body. Now, Let's think about this last thing, and then we'll be done. Well, think about how does this, I mean, how does this work? Think about the resurrected Christ. Because, I mean, if we're going to have the right perspective in the middle, we got to think about, well, what, what do we know based on Scripture? Jesus dies in the tomb, rises. From, now, this is what's interesting. The Bible goes to great lengths to show us things that seem strange about the resurrected Jesus. Does it not seem strange to you? Jesus comes back. He's resurrected. He's defeated sin and death. He comes back. So here's what you're thinking. You're like me. You're thinking, man, the Avengers ain't got nothing on this. He's fixing to come back. My, like, laser beams flying, superpowers everywhere. And he comes back in his resurrected body, and he's like, I'm hungry. Has anybody got anything to eat? You're like, what? All the power of the resurrection body. And what does he do? He, he has a barbecue with his disciples on the beach and eats fish. And then when he sees the disciples, he doesn't go, hey, check this out. Watch what I can do. You want to see something cool? He doesn't do that. He goes, look, feel this, feel this, see this. It's really me. I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. I'm just me. Why does the Bible go to such great lengths to show us the material Part of the resurrected Jesus. What, what is that about? Why? And now remember something. Because some of you get confused about this. When Jesus is walking around in his resurrected body, there's not, the old body's not still in the tomb rotting. He's in it. In other words, it's not a whole new body. It's the same body resurrected. You got that? That's important information. So he is now in a resurrected body, and he's eating, and he's hungry, and he's saying, touch me, feel me. John chapter 20 says this, listen, then on that evening, being on the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them. What now? See, the doors were shut. They were locked. They were in there. They were afraid of the Jews. And all of a sudden, Jesus is there. Like, what is happening? Jesus just walked through the door. What's going on? And then Jesus, what's the first thing he says? He goes, peace be with you. Well, thank you for that. You just walked through it. Did you just walk through the door? How did that happen? Now, wait a minute now. On one hand, we're going, hey, it's, everything's normal. I'm hungry. I'm going to eat fish. Let's have a barbecue. And on the other hand, it's like, oh, a door. I'm just walking through that. Now, there's some tension here. Why is the Bible creating this tension between these two things? Not only that, Jesus goes back to heaven in that body. So that body is so like jammed up. I mean, that thing's got some, 
I mean, we don't have capacity like that. Jesus is on this earth, and then he goes, goes to heaven. And that, like, that body can go there. So he eats fish and has a barbecue, but he walks right through doors and can go to heaven then. Why the tension? Well, listen, I, I mean, I, I don't want to belabor this point. I just want to say, look, when you get to heaven and you, you're going you're gonna to get a resurrected body and you're going to exist in perfect fellowship with God the way God intended for it always to be, and so you're going to be surrounded by natural wonders. You're going to be surrounded by animals and trees and rivers and cities and houses and architecture. You're going to laugh. You're going to eat. You're going to tell stories. You're going to build things. You're going to garden. You're going to explore things. You're going to care for things. You're going to enjoy physical activities. You're going to, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be unbelievable. It's going to be, I mean, you're, you're going to be a physical being created in the image of God still which means that you're, you're going to be creative and intelligent, but just to like the bazillionth degree. And not only will heaven banish all sickness and suffering and sadness, but it will also banish boredom. There will never be another millisecond of boredom for all eternity because you're going to be in perfection. And just for added benefit, if you just think about what the Scripture says, like you ask the question, well, are we still going to be ourselves when we get to heaven? Well, yeah, Jesus, when he came back, he wasn't somebody else. He was still who? Jesus. So guess who you're going to be? You. Some of you are like, man, I was hoping for a redo on that. Are you going to, yeah, you're still going to be you. You know how I know that for sure? Because you're going to be held accountable for the things you did in this life at the judgment seat of Christ. And that wouldn't make any sense if you weren't you. There wouldn't be any accountability. But there's going to be accountability. So you're going to be you. You're also going to know your loved ones, and your loved ones are going to know you. We're not going to be like some kind of androgynous beings that don't know anything or remember anything. No, no, that's going to be ridiculous. That's not how that works. See, when Paul was talking about this with the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and he's explaining to them what happens to people who die and how God's going to come and gather us up and the dead are going to rise and all that. He's explaining that to them with full confidence that they're going to see each other again in heaven, which means we're going to know each other in heaven. You're going to know your loved ones. They're going to know you. But your relationships are going to be to a way higher and better and more amazing, magnified degree. But anyway, that's all just extra. Let's finish. The door. Jesus walked through the door. Let's talk about this for a second. Now, if I take my fist and I punch a brick wall, something's going to give, and it's not going to be the brick wall. And why is that? Now, I know there's a lot of you in here way smarter than me, so don't be too critical. Because the wall is far more dense than my fist. It has far greater mass than my fist. It's far weightier than my fist, so my fist has no chance against it. But if a freight train hits that wall, that wall gets obliterated. Because the density of the freight train, the mass of the freight train so far exceeds the density of the brick wall, right? So there's this understood reality where if two things of disproportionate density collide, the lesser of the two is going to give way to the greater. Isn't that true? Yes, that's true. You ever hit an egg with a baseball bat? It doesn't go very far. So I'm just making an observation. When Jesus walks through the door, why do we just automatically think, oh, it's a ghost? He went to, every time he talked to somebody, he made sure they knew he wasn't a spirit. So how did he walk through the door? What if 
the weightiness of Jesus' resurrected body was far greater than the door. What if the the density, the reality of Jesus' resurrected body was far superior to the door? What if if everything that we know and experience in this life is not as real as it gets? That when we get to heaven, we're going to find out what real really is. We're going to find out that this, (laughs) you know what's going to happen? Every one of us that gets to heaven is going to look back at this world and say, that was like a ghost. Because for the very first time, we're going to experience what's really real, what was always intended to be. God is a sovereign, good God who loves you, and he has a plan, and he's committed to his plan, and his plan's going to come to pass. And you know what his plan is for you? Saved person, what if you knew that the plan for our joy is a resurrected life and a resurrected body with a resurrected Christ and a resurrected world? What if you knew that? What if you knew that? I'd be willing to bet if you knew that in the core of your being, If you believe that with all you are, you'd be a lot more like Paul and a lot less like the world. A lot of your anxiety and worry and fear would dissipate. You know why? You know why you're not committed to the mission? You know why you're not willing to live for God? Really live for Him. You don't believe the reward. Is everything it's stacked up to be? Because if you did, you'd change. 